0: Hello and welcome to It today's Let's Talk AI podcast where you can hear from AI researchers about what's going on with AI. This is our latest last week in AI episode in which you get summaries and discussion of some of last week's most interesting AI news. For regular listeners, uh, we'll note that there is a bit of a change of format this week. We won't have our usual summary segment until the end of the episode, but otherwise, it'll be just about the same. So, uh, let us introduce ourselves. I am Andrey Krenkov, a third year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotics, and with me is my co host.
1: I'm Dr. Sharon Joe, a graduating fourth-year PhD student in the machine learning group, working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models and applying machine learning to medicine and climate. And uh, this week, Andre is pushing hard for the choral deadline uh, in three weeks. <laughs>
0: Try, starting to, starting to. yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You know... We'll see. Always the last two weeks is when things get hectic, but also when kind of hopefully everything magically comes together and then somehow the paper emerges from the ether. We'll see.
1: Yes, that is exactly what happens. Uh, And and we'll talk a bit about how uh, the process might be a little bit not so great later in this episode.
0: Exactly. But uh, before that, let's dive into our first story about AI research with uh, this one from uh, a couple of new sources covered how um, there was the rebel AI group that raises record cash after machine learning schism. So this is all about this new company, Anthropic, led by Dario Amodei, a former head of AI safety at OpenAI, which has raised 124 million in its first funding round. So this is, uh, you know, basically a bunch of people from OpenAI, including uh, this uh, Daniel Amodei and. Uh, her, their sibling Dario Amade, and a, a bunch of other big names of people who worked on GPT three interoperability, uh, scaling laws, etc. Basically, various people from OpenAI starting this uh, new company that uh, appears to be maybe kind of a similar focus as OpenAI when it started. Uh, so it's you know very similar in terms of this kind of public benefit corporation that is researching kind of uh, how to make AI beneficial for everyone. Uh, Yeah. So I know, Sharon, you said uh, you've been kind of hearing things about this front for a while. So I wonder if you have any kind of thoughts on this one.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited for Anthropic. Uh, They uh, have been kind of in stealth for a while um, coming out of OpenAI and uh, have you know, raised and announced this huge round, which is super exciting. Um, And their goal is to uh, essentially help AI, you know, especially these large generative models that we're seeing, um, help put guardrails on them, make sure that we can safely use them and actually just make them usable in general. Because as we know, GPT-3 can spew, you know, nonsense and sometimes um, pretty toxic nonsense that can hurt people or make people, you know, feel like, this probably can't be used in this application uh, from an enterprise perspective or generally from a user perspective. So that's what Anthropic is kind of trying to get at is, you know, can we, can we add, you know, steerability to these models? Can we try to understand these models a bit more? And can these models have a bit more interpretability? And can we make them robust so that they could actually be deployed out in the real world? Uh, and do we, and I think it's also, we need to be able to incorporate evaluation upfront, you know, and not just, you know, at the very end and post processing or something like that. We need to also integrate it into training and in, into the whole um, pipeline, you know. Uh, all of that data infrastructure in general. So I think that's that's what they're getting at, and that's really exciting. It'll take a decent amount of research as well as uh, generally, uh, and also compute. So I imagine a decent amount of that money will go to compute. Um, and of, of course, efforts on on working and in creating kind of the new uh, GPT-3 uh, or the new GPT-3 that can be usable, steerable um, uh, by by the world. And so that's really exciting. I'm really excited for them. Um. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, Yeah. I think uh, this seems to be a trend that probably won't go away of bigger and bigger models. And as you said, you know, obviously one of the limitations of machine learning in general right now is exactly these things. Like we have really good uh, kind of benchmark results, really good uh, functionality, except for reliability, interoperability, Kind of making sure that there's no bias. All of these things are very much still active research problems, and especially for these giant models. So it seems like a very nice goal, and given the team and kind of the background they bring, um, it uh, it it seems like definitely something to look forward to.
1: And I think it's connected to the fact that OpenAI is moving, um, leaning more into their partnership with Microsoft and going, you know, more the product route that folks on the more research and safety side, you know, want to still focus on those elements. And so they still want to carve out that space and they still think, you know, it's useful, of course, that, it, that we're not ready yet to necessarily go directly to product with some of, some of the models that are out right now. And so it makes sense that there is a little bit of this. And I think the article calls it a schism, but I, maybe it's not exactly, maybe that's a little bit strong of a word. Uh, but there certainly is some kind of divide in terms of, um, direction and, and vision. And so, uh, open AI, um, is, has launched actually a startup fund uh, with from themselves and it's a hundred million dollar uh, fund and they want to help support other companies in this space um, make a positive impact on the world with ai
0: yeah exactly like this whole notion of schism seems a bit dramatic uh doesn't seem like there is anything maybe negative so much as maybe just wanting to work on different things uh, between these different people. And um, yeah, it was interesting to see both of these announcements come uh, come out right next to each other of OpenAI having the Startup Fund and this uh, Anthropic coming out. Uh, it definitely seems like OpenAI is now more focused on... Commercializing and and uh, you know making use of AI and you know making advancements towards AI the and these uh, safety and uh, interoperability and these other kind of aspects that they have sort of had for a while but hasn't been necessarily what most people associate with OpenAI. And uh, I don't know I, I also have seen you know on Reddit and uh, different discussion boards I think there's. Uh, opening Eye is a little divisive. Some people have gotten pretty cynical about it due to some of the PR they do, due to them changing from non-profit to for-profit. And I've seen some very cynical takes on Anthropic, which uh, is a bit sad. And I, I do hope that people... um you know, similar to us, it seems uh, we are, we think this is pretty positive and I'm pretty excited to see what Anthropic does. And I hope that's going to be the case, you know, maybe with some distance from OpenAI, people will also come to appreciate that this is a cool...
1: Yeah, the whole setup of companies is really interesting, especially now as, and I'm, I'm thinking about this as taking a step back, you know, with Signal taking off. It's a nonprofit, nonprofit not a 501c uh, company, and it's really trying to, you know, <laughs> replace WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger, et cetera, all those messaging apps that don't really preserve user privacy. Um, and taking this other approach of hey, we're just going to go play non nonprofit here, um, and also just you know, I, it makes me wonder about these AI companies where you know there is this for-profit as- aspect and angle, and I wonder if at the end of the day, you know, what what kind of situation, what kind of setup of a company might make the most sense, uh, and it, it might be something more like Signal, depending on how um, the public takes it, and it could because I think people are becoming more and more cynical in, in general when it comes to technology, uh, to be honest, and, and, and what people are doing with that technology or companies are doing with that technology.
0: Yeah, and, uh, yeah exactly. And, and one question I've also seen raised is, you know, how will Anthropic make money? Uh, which is also a question that was there for OpenAI. And eventually it seemed like OpenAI decided to start making money by commercializing and likewise you know raising 124 million that's a lot of money and right now it just seems to be uh you know corporation to do research which is not a great way to make money you know um so it'll be interesting to see what happens if it'll be acquired if they do go somehow the nonprofit round and it'll be more about uh charity i don't know but um All I know is uh, it's a great team and they seem to have a good goal. And uh, at least for now, I am pretty excited to see where they go and and what they do starting out.
1: Yep, likewise. And so on to our next article, which takes a pretty different turn on things. Uh, It's a blog post titled, Please Commit More Blatant Academic Fraud. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek right there. And as you can probably guess, it's about academic fraud and, you know, how we kind of abuse or trying to game the system uh, for not necessarily science, but for instead, I guess, climbing the academic ladder. Uh, And sadly, everything in that blog post, I pretty much agree with. And I think it's long due for someone to um, kind of holistically, I mean, write this all out, you know, yeah. And uh, of course, maybe just to go through a few things, like one of big thing is cherry picking examples where your model looks good or even cherry picking whole data sets for you to test on. Uh, so you can confirm that your model has some kind of advantage is, is one thing they bring up. And um, I just want to say that this was like a huge motivating factor for me to do research on what, what I had done research on because I was so upset at how much cherry picking there was. I was like, there couldn't this cannot be true. Uh, so that that definitely is a huge problem in our space that I can confirm. Uh, another one is making up new problem settings, new data sets, new objectives in order to claim victory on an empty playing field. I will say this, like, this is something like companies do as well. Uh, this one I don't think is necessarily as feels as fraudulent, but of course, it, it it's kind of, you know, like, oh, well, that's you find novelty in some some direction. Uh and then another point that I would agree with that is, I guess, a little bit more sketchy is proclaiming that your work is a, quote, promising first step in your introduction, despite being fully aware that nobody will ever build on it. That is so sad. So sad to me, but I could totally see like that is totally true. Uh, and I've yeah I basically I feel like I've seen that and then tried to contact the authors you know either for code or for questions about their method and they just are really really um kind of dicey and 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 uh, flaky about uh getting back to me <laughs> any of that ring true for you andre
0: yeah yeah I mean uh, definitely these examples that he cites are very you know Something that we're all aware to some extent exists of—you know—not tuning your baselines very well, kind of uh, not being overly careful in your evaluation, submitting a paper kind of even if there are some issues with it, just so it can be published. So yeah, I mean, some of the uh, things he highlights are definitely kind of uh, quite common. Although I will say that uh, later on in this blog post, there are some things that I found uh, less agreeable. So uh, he says that um, because everybody is complicit in this subtle fraud, nobody is willing to acknowledge its existence. And the said result is that, as a community, we have developed a collective blind spot around a depressing reality that even at top conferences, the media published paper contains no truth or insight, <laughs> which is pretty pretty intense. I would say, first of all, people are willing to acknowledge these issues that there are ways to game the system, that there are issues with reproducibility and with uh, evaluation, but I. Don't agree that, you know, the median paper, so like, you know, at least half, maybe more papers uh, published at top conferences are basically worthless. Uh, I do think that we should give some credit to researchers wanting to do something of value and not just publish, you know, whatever they can. Um, so uh, I will say yeah, that I think it's a little too pessimistic, a little too cynical, and uh of course, also, it, it says, please commit more blatant academic fraud, and meaning later conclusion is, you know, given this issue of subtle fraud, what we should do is commit even more explicit, you know, blatant fraud so that we can actually address this issue and, uh, you know, uh, uh not allow it and and really uh, remove it, which I think is, is a satirical kind of uh, thing that obviously isn't a serious suggestion. But at the same time, uh, that does beg the question, well, what is a serious suggestion? How can you root out these uh, subtle, small ways of gaming the system? And to me, it seems like there's always going to be ways to game the system, and that's always going to be common. So... Um, yeah, I think even though it's not ideal, you know, we don't live in an ideal world. And I think it's a little, it's a little unfair to be so critical while not acknowledging that maybe it's a little inevitable. Although, of course, things could be better.
1: Yeah, I mean, for for what it's worth, this is written by PhD students. So I, I would say in my darkest my darkest moments of PhD. This is how I feel. <laughs> uh, so I I don't I don't blame him for uh, being very very cynical. And um, I do think there are, are problems. I I don't completely follow the collusion ring thing unless it's kind of this in, the implicit collusion rings that do form due to everyone implicitly you know agreeing and partaking in this kind of uh, fraud. If that's what that means, uh, in which he does mention and, and cite another another piece of work on, um, yeah, it's it is uh, it is very sad, and this is like a discussion that I've had with a lot of different researchers. So it is something that we discuss pretty out in the open, and uh, it also has been interesting to discuss this with a non technical someone outside of the AI community for sure, who hears. You know, myself and someone else talking about you know some of the issues that we have with with publications and everything. And he was really, really enlightened and just didn't realize that he thought you know AI community is perfect, blah blah blah, and uh, academia, like you know, not companies but academia. And I was like, oh, this is far from perfect, sir. And here's some things. And I'm glad I can share this article with him. <laughs> but uh, I, I think there is much to be improved. Uh, especially since added ex- extreme, this uh, this isn't just AI community. You know, this is a lot of other a lot of other um, uh, scientific communities also suffer from some of these things. Uh, so uh, this it is. I, I feel like this is an academia kind of problem or research type of problem, incentives problem.
0: Yeah, I think it's true that you know uh, when you first enter research as in undergrad or master's or even phd you know you have this idealistic vision of research and pursuing the truth and you don't really know how the sausage gets made and when you're you know in there for a while you start to understand that it's it's pretty messy and and some aspects of it are you know um not that you're pretty uh, there's politics you know there's uh reviewing is, is a total mess. There's a lot of randomness as to what gets attention, and what doesn't. There's a lot of things that could be improved. And so it is good that this blog post, you know, uh, with a very eye catching title, brought attention once again to these issues, because at some point you might get numb to it and, you know, just accept it. This is the way things are. So, yeah, hopefully, um, you know, we'll keep working on it, I think. It's hard to address these uh, subtle issues, but it's also something that I I will say, I think most researchers want to do, and it's sort of like a a community-wide system problem. And so um, it's possible, but it'll take work. And uh, although this doesn't suggest how to do it, at least it kind of reminds us that the work does need to be done (laughs) somehow.
1: Yes, somehow. Anyways, our next article, (laughs) moving on, Uh, is more around applications. And it's titled AI could soon write code based on ordinary language. And this is from Wired. All right. So again, looping back to OpenAI and Microsoft, uh, they just recently shared their plans to bring GBT3, uh, the large language model, to not just output natural language, but to output code you know, based on your natural language description. So if you wanted to, you could just describe something that you want and GPT-3 could write the code for you. And it could be, you know, it could build a website, for example, it could, um, I don't know, write something a little more powerful than that. And that is one of their uh, big visions and that they're that they're working uh, working towards. And so that's, Super exciting, I think. And I think there were a few examples of this when GPT-3 first launched. Some people were able to, to do that and create their own kind of uh, HTML graphs uh, using GPT-3 uh, just out of the box. And so that was, that was really, really cool. And now they're putting a more concerted effort towards making that happen and not just... Making you know nice, pretty diagrams and graphs, and pulling together you know U.S. presidents and their birthdays and their length of uh, stay in office and all this other jazz. But something, but even more complex stuff and syncing research resources into that. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited for for this direction. Uh, and I know some folks are working working on that now.
0: Yeah, there's been a good deal of research on this, basically taking English and converting it to programming. And so um, it's interesting to see it being commercialized. you know. And uh, here, I guess the idea is to translate natural language into this power effects uh, thing, which is a simple programming language similar to Excel commands. And uh, given, I think, yeah, given how many people use the Windows Office Suite, how many people use Excel, this is a very natural thing to work on and, and to empower people. So, um, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what else Microsoft does with GPT-3, but it, this is a nice kind of first real commercialized large-scale application that really is not, would not have been possible without AI and, and without something as advanced as GPT-3, maybe. Yep, yeah, so that, that's pretty much all there is to say. Uh, pretty cool to see that being done. Uh, and then we can move on to our next application article, uh, which is on modeling COVID-19. And, and so there's this article that's a, that is called altogether now the most trustworthy COVID-19 model is an ensemble. So this article is basically um, kind of reiterating or reviewing uh, what uh, has happened with COVID-19 forecasting, which is, of course, a major effort seeing, you know, kind of what's we can expect as far as infectious infections and deaths with COVID-19 week to week, month to month uh, over the past year. And this is covering uh, how there was the COVID-19 forecast hub, which aggregated and evaluated weekly results from many models and then generated an ensemble model, which is basically um, you know, combining multiple predictions to make a single prediction that is most reliable. Because, uh, you know, making a model to to predict anything is hard and something as complex as infections of disease is, is very hard. So, we, you know, they all didn't match, really. Uh, each model had its own kind of predictions that may have varied quite a bit. So this ensemble technique, which is not new at all, but um, which is... Uh, you know very important in this context uh proved to be essential so yeah uh pretty neat uh do you have any thoughts on this one sharon
1: yeah well one thing that's not surprising is that an ensemble model does do better than than an individual model so the ensemble basically puts together you know all different models kind of averages their results and it makes it so that the if something wacky happens with one of them, it doesn't matter. You know, the rest can take care of it type of thing. And so this is something that we kind of know. Uh, so it's not super surprising. But it is exciting to, to see, you know, people uh, aggregating um, these models and actually uh, and still working uh, towards um, COVID forecasting. I know that ultimately uh, a lot of these models, uh, especially using deep learning, were not necessarily Used for actual diagnosis, um, but it is nice to kind of go full circle and and have this evaluation and uh, and and publish results on this.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. This this article is pretty nice, maybe for people not aware of this idea of ensembling. and also it is a nice kind of um, overview of the effort in terms of. Probably just working to get all these people to collaborate and um, kind of combine their predictions is, is more so what's impressive here. So, um, yeah, not too surprising, but also um, pretty cool. And then, uh, also looking at this article, apparently, earlier this spring, a paper studying COVID forecasting appeared on the Met archive preprint server with an offers list running 256 names long. So you can see how much of a collaboration there really was.
1: That is that is a lot of authors, <laughs> I will say, even for uh, for, you know, machine learning, AI, even for physics, everything. That's a lot of authors. But that is an ensemble of authors. As well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's, I'm looking at it. And uh, the title of the paper is Evaluation of Individual and Ensemble Probabilistic Forecasts of COVID-19 Mortality in the U.S., And then actually title, which is at the very top of the first page, it's just like the entire first page is names, just like the whole thing. And then in the list of affiliations, there's 69 different organizations. So, uh, yeah, I think in that sense, uh, even though maybe the results aren't surprising, that there is such a robust study is pretty cool.
1: Right. All right. And on to our next article uh, that is more AI embedded in society uh, It's titled AI can write disinformation now and dupe human readers. And this is an article from Wired. All right. So as you know, AI can write disinformation now. We've been talking about this for a while uh, in this podcast. Um, But There actually has been uh, some research done that looks at using GPT-3 to generate misinformation uh, for the past six months. And this is a group at Georgetown University. And so GPT-3, they've been getting GPT-3 to write stories around, you know, kind of having false narrative, um, different news articles that have been altered by GPT-3 to push some kind of bogus perspective, and also um, tweets kind of riffing on particular points of disinformation. Um, and they, the group says that they could, uh, prove that, that, that GPT-3 was especially effective for automatically generating these short messages on social media and, uh, be able to, um, be able to fool humans, uh, when, when reading, uh, these, these short little messages on, on social media.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to see an actual study on this, because uh, it, it has been sort of kept hypothetical for a little while. I suppose maybe not too surprising uh, that, you know, AI can generate tweets uh, because, you know, how coherent <laughs> do you really need to be to make uh, believable tweets? Um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's nice to see actual research on this front. Now, um, we should note that uh, you know, this whole thing has been discussed on and off for a while, and uh, one thing that's often noted is that we really shouldn't freak out too much because you know these um, countries that use misinformation could pretty easily just hire a bunch of people to be pretty convincing as is. And so these AI models, aren't necessarily something to worry too much about, at least uh, for now, when, when they can't really write articles, they, they primarily are doing fairly simple work that may not need to be automated. But uh, on to another story that uh, may be something we should be worried about, I think. We have uh, this story from Business Insider titled "A Rogue, A Rogue Killer Drone Hunted Down a Human Target Without Being Instructed to." A UN report says, and the summary here is that um, a lethal weaponized drone uh, called Cargu Two, which is a, a quadcopter. Uh, supposedly autonomously attacked a human during a conflict between uh, Libyan government forces and a breakaway military faction. And so uh, this was um, a drone that was uh, directed to detonate on impact and apparently was operating in a highly effective autonomous mode without a human operator. And uh, yeah, this is pretty weird because uh, so far, really, although people have been concerned there hasn't been any reported cases of robots uh, without human operation being used in the military. And, and this may be the very first time that's happened. So um, kind of uh, maybe something to be worried about more so in GPT-3. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Sharon?
1: Yeah, it's not great. (laughs) Uh, You know, AI warfare, drone stuff, it's coming and it's maybe coming as the wrong word, it's here. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something to worry about right now, um, to think about. And I think, you know, it's no longer something necessarily to prevent, but to manage. Uh, So uh, as we see a lot of conflict around the world, it's going to be more and more important
0: yeah exactly and and one thing to note is um in these discussions uh, so far there's really no regulation around this stuff uh, about kind of uh, autonomous weaponry where there's no human control and no human decision making and the reason people are concerned is that this might enable you know scaling up of warfare might enable kind of more deniability in terms of uh Uh, casualties that weren't intended so there's a lot of things to be concerned about and that this happened there was actually an autonomous robot that uh, exploded it means that this is coming and and we knew this was coming but now there's an actual example and it could become common very quickly so uh, definitely something to watch out for and uh, maybe be more concerned about and and some of these these other things we discussed
1: right and on to our last article which is uh a bit funny or cringey rather uh it's titled Terrible News Everyone AI is learning how to post cringe And this is an article actually about Replica uh, and what they put out recently. So Replica is an AI startup that we've mentioned in the podcast before that kind of does interesting things with synthetic speech and has you be able to have this kind of avatar that you can interact with. Uh, And they recently had this hackathon uh, where these employees worked on uh, capturing a live video of himself rapping and then transferring all of that into kind of AI voices and 3D animation. Uh, and it, it was obviously a little bit uncanny valley and weird. Uh, and the lip syncing was slightly off. Uh, and they can definitely do, they mentioned they can definitely do better than that with AI, which, which is true. Uh, but it, it is a little bit cringy to, to watch, since it's kind of a rap about AI by these Kind of AI characters that the engineers uh, of Replica put together uh, and basically mined. You know, it was it was based on their own wrapping.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. Uh, I guess I'm a little curious as to why Replica put this out in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> really, uh, very true. Yeah, maybe they intended a little bit of cringe-based marketing. Uh, but yeah, it's it's all in good fun, I think. And in fact, um, there's uh, maybe when Replica emailed this to The Verge, uh, or maybe when they replied, um, they had this disclaimer. They actually wrote disclaimer that um, the video is deep in the heart of Van Ancalde Valley, that it was done for fun and using a new feature that's on due development. So, yeah, I think they, they pretty much intended for this to be a little distracting thing that might get them a bit of attention. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's fun. But obviously this wasn't necessarily the highest effort uh, <laughs> attempt at doing something like this. Yes,
1: it was very, very interesting. I would say I, I encourage you to go check out maybe part of it (laughs) not the whole thing
0: (laughs) exactly but uh, you know sometimes it's nice to have something silly you know and purely ridiculous being done with ai in fact uh, you know ai is pretty good at at really being silly and uh, maybe you should have more of that uh, to complement all this open ai and gpt free stuff
1: true very very true and with that, that's it for us on this episode. But be sure to stick around for a few more minutes to get a quick summary of some other cool news stories from our very own newscaster, Daniel Bashir.
2: First off, a few recent advancements in research. According to a New Scientist, an AI system developed at Tel Aviv University has disproved five mathematical conjectures despite not having any information about the problems. As covered on Synced Review, DeepMind has presented something called Neural Algorithmic Reasoning, a fusion of neural networks and algorithmic computation. The system can go from raw inputs to general outputs while internally emulating an algorithm. Also covered in Synced Review, a research team from the University of Montreal and the Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems, that includes Yoshua Bengio, has developed a new reinforcement learning agent, whose knowledge and reward function can be reused across tasks. By using a modular architecture and adopting a meta-learning approach, the agent can adapt to changes in distribution or new tasks. Next up, we'll look at the business and application side. On May 25th, according to Electric, Tesla announced a transition of its Autopilot, and full self-driving technology to solely using computer vision based on cameras without relying on its front-facing radar. Second, as The Verge reports, Chinese autonomous vehicle startup Pony.ai has received a permit from the California DMV to test its driverless cars without human safety drivers in three cities. It becomes the eighth in California to receive a driverless testing permit, after three other Chinese companies and four U.S.-based companies. And finally, a few stories on the AI and society side. As VentureBeat reports, global analytics firm FICO and Corinian surveyed 100 C-level analytic and data executives to understand how organizations are deploying AI and ensuring ethical use. Despite increasing demand for and use of AI tools, the survey found that 65% of companies can't explain how AI model decisions or predictions are made. FICO's State of Responsible AI report also shows that business leaders are putting little effort into ensuring that the AI systems they use are fair and safe for public use. And finally, as covered in the conversation, the company behind the Vibra Image AI system claims the system can determine how someone is feeling, their personality, and their future behavior from head vibrations, despite a lack of viable evidence for the system's effectiveness.
1: And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at scannettoday.com.
0: Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review if you like the show.
1: Be sure to tune in next week.
0: All right. Woo!